Hello and welcome to A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, a trumpet call, a voice crying out loud for God to those that would hear, so that they would run to him, that they might be warned. We hear sounding the alarm that our time here on earth is short, and that we have no time to waste. Here we will expose the truth, teach the word, discuss the dangers, lies, and enemies we are surrounded by, and how to engage in the war that we are standing in the middle of. Today we're going to talk about the heart and soul of the church. As with any monologue, these are my conclusions, and my opinions, based upon my experiences, my relationship with God, and that being said, as believers, we're all free to disagree. So take this with the level of importance that you deem correct, and ignore the parts that you disagree with. There is a common misconception that is taught in many churches today, especially some of the mega churches, and that is that we ask Jesus to protect us physically, financially, and in our health, and that we will immediately get that. Jesus is not a genie. We can't just expect to ask for and receive all the finer things in life. While if it be God's will, yes, he will protect us and these things. But if it isn't necessary to further the kingdom, he may not. See, God's true concern is the heart of man. God seeks the salvation of our hearts, not our wallets. Too many in Western culture believe that God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and comfortable. No time in history, nor in no book of the Word of God, is it written that God cares about our wallets or our comforts. Actually, he spells out that if you believe and that you follow him, you will have trouble. We are called to suffer for Christ. We are to carry our cross daily, which means we are to step out in such a way that we must be prepared for persecution and maybe martyrdom at any time. Most Christians outside the Western cultures understand this. Christians in Afghanistan, Somalia, China, Iran, and many other nations expect to die for their faith. In a report from Open Doors, we read that a woman in India watches as her sister is dragged off by Hindu nationalists. She doesn't know if her sister is alive or dead. And a man in North Korea in a prison camp is shaken awake after being beaten unconscious. Then the beatings begin again. A woman in Nigeria runs for her life. She has escaped from Boko Haram, who kidnapped her. She is now pregnant, and when she returns home, her community will reject her and her baby. A group of children are laughing and talking as they come down the church sanctuary after eating together. Instantly, many of them are killed by a bomb blast. It's Easter Sunday. In Sri Lanka. These people don't live in the same region or even the same continent, but they share an important characteristic. They are all Christians, and they suffer because of their faith. From Sudan to Russia, from Nigeria to North Korea, from Colombia to India, followers of Christianity are targeted for their faith. They are attacked, they are discriminated against at work and at school. They risk sexual violence, torture, arrest, and much more. In just the last year, there have been over 340 million Christians living in places 
where they experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination. 4,761 Christians were killed this last year for their faith. 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 4,277 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned for their faith. These numbers are heartbreaking in that they do not tell the whole story. In James 1, 2-4, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That joy is what we see when we hear and work with Christians all over the world who suffer because they serve Jesus. God cares for his people, and he will never forsake them or leave them. So we're going to talk about how you boil a frog today. So boiling the frogs. I know not many of you are thinking that these things that we just spoke of could ever happen here in the United States. But really, let's examine that just a little bit. Do we live in a United States of America anymore? No, I don't believe that we do. It is glaringly obvious that we live in a divided States of America. The ideals, morality, and opinions, ideas are vastly different across our nation. The morality, self-identification, and motivations of those on the West Coast does not align with middle America. The priorities, goals, and inspiration of New York and Washington, D.C. do not align with those of the Deep South and Texas. The lifestyle, view of independence, and faith views of Minnesota, Chicago, and Michigan is not the same as that of Utah, Oklahoma, Missouri, Florida, and Arkansas. Just how different are the social norms of Alaska and Hawaii? If we are so vastly different socially, morally, and in our faith, in our families, ideas, and of education, and the view of the role of the government, what is holding us together? An idea? A memory? A wish or desire for a promise? Has that promise been broken? The truth is, we are many nations that share a common border and a central government that only represents a very few. No longer does the elected federal government represent the will of the masses. It represents the very few, the elite, the corporations, the special interests, but not the people. So why do the people put up with this? And why would any people allow their elected or hired government to act against their best wishes? Ow, we're turning that temperature up a little bit at a time now. There are actually several reasons for this. One, the American culture has trained everyone to become debt slaves. We sold our independence for stuff. We have collectively truly traded our birthright for a bowl of soup. Two, we have relinquished our responsibilities to a bureaucratic body. In the education of our children, we have hired others to babysit and raise our children. We have bought electronic devices to entertain and play with our children. As these children have grown to adulthood, they have absolutely nothing in common with their parents, their morality, ideas, and beliefs. No, they have the morality, ideas, and beliefs of their teachers, the media that they watch and listen to, and the games that they play. 
Three, a majority of adults have been sucked into a continuous stream of entertainment. From the NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL, PGA, World Cup, soccer, or the NFL, or binging Netflix, Hulu, or Disney Channel, or any of the other number of entertainment TV. A high percentage of people have smartphones with at least one game on it from Angry Birds, Tetris, Candy Crush, Solitaire, or Pokemon. Our society is not living life. We are entertained life. Living for comfort. We do nothing about the things we disagree with because we are too busy being entertained to try to stop it. It would get us out of our comfort zone. It would take an actual effort. Four, our entertainment has developed a deep-rooted lethargy. We have become so atrophied that our effort would take to mobilize and to take a stand and fight back would take more effort than we can muster. Five, we have been tamed and shamed into becoming politically correct, to be docile and subservient. Individualism and our personal rights are now viewed as selfish. Standing up and speaking out comes at a high price. In our cancel culture, you will be shamed at a minimum and financially, socially, or legally destroyed at worst. Just ask Nicki Minaj, who has now been canceled on social media, shamed by politicians, and threatened by the media. So why do I tell you this? Because it is important to know where we are and how we have been trained to be asleep and ineffective to stop what is happening. We all have some form of normalcy bias, and the truth is that we what we perceive as normal is not normal. Americans that lived in a fantasy land their entire lives that does not exist anywhere else in the world and it is based upon layers of illusion and delusion. This life of abundance, expansive freedoms, potential for unimaginable prosperity, and the best health care in the history of the planet, and every imaginable luxury, food, and entertainment has never been experienced by any other nation on Earth's history or past or present. The delusion that this will always be or that things will always get back to normal is called normalcy bias. Now that water's getting warmer. So what is normalcy bias? Normalcy bias is a mindset that society and our lives of luxury and excess have trained us into that we can place us in a grave and dangerous situation when we're forced with something traumatic. Simply put, it causes our brains to insist that it's all is okay. Everything will return to normal. For most of us who have never focused on true peril, normalcy bias tells us that nothing bad will ever happen. This normalcy bias causes many people to not adequately prepare for natural disasters, market crashes, and calamities caused by human error. This is America. Some people insist when I tell them about the possibility of a deeper depression or hyperinflation, incredibly, the most obvious warning signs are completely ignored. About 70% of the people reportedly display normalcy bias during a disaster. This phenomenon explains why so many Jews continued living in Germany, even after they were forced to wear identifying yellow stars and discriminatory laws were passed against the Jewish people. Life had been so good for so long that surely things would get better. Jews who could have easily afforded to move out of the country stayed and perished. 
Oncoming hurricanes and similar disasters elicit similar reactions. We simply expect life to go on as it always has, and our brains are wired to accept that and nothing else. A driver attempts to cross a flooded river and drowns. Thousands of New Orleans residents faced face with Hurricane Katrina refused to leave the city, and the city officials didn't even make an attempt to evacuate them. One survivor from 9-11 tells of going blind as she saw dozens of human bodies hitting the ground outside the Twin Towers. Our minds just can't process the problem. All right, just a little bit more heat. That water is really, really hot now. We've traded in normal for a new normal time and time again. As long as it's just slightly different than the old normal and seems right for all, this is known as a shifting baseline syndrome. Simply put, shifting baseline syndrome is a gradual change in the accepted norms for the condition of the natural environment due to a lack of experience, memory, and or knowledge of the past condition. In this case, what we consider to be healthy environment now, past generations would consider to be degraded. And what we judge to be degraded now, the next generation will consider to be healthy and or normal. We have allowed an outside entity to determine what is normal. What we should accept. 25 or 30 years ago, if you had told me American citizens would meekly line up, walk through a powerful x-ray machine that would strip them naked before a low-level TSA employee, I would have said that would never happen. If you had told me that as an option they could be able to stand with their arms raised while their crotches and breasts were groped and would allow their preschoolers and their wheelchair-bound grandmothers to be similarly molested, I would have laughed. Yet that's exactly what has happened. And not only do Americans meekly put up with this, but they defend it. It's what is seen as normal now. If you would have told me Americans and the descendants of the people that forged a new nation, crossed raging rivers, traversed mountains on horseback, crossed deserts on foot, and tamed a wild, barely habitable continent, would allow themselves to be locked in their homes, separated by six feet distancing, plexiglass dividers, and face masks. I would never have believed that. American parents would allow people to forcibly put masks on their children and keep forcing it on until their toddlers, when they remove it all the while, scream in terror. Now, many of us are willing to put an, ex an experimental drug still in the testing phase in our bodies in a hope to stave off an illness that has a 99.997% survivability rate and admittedly will not keep you from getting the illness, but might keep you from getting as sick as you might get if you're unvaccinated. A drug that has proven horrible side effects in some people and deadly to others is being accepted and defended and promoted by a large percentage of our society. I would never have believed that we would throw all known logic about our immune systems and the medication out the window for a mandatory compliance of a vaccine. The idea that with studies proving that natural immunity of those that have recovered is 27 times more effective than the vaccine, we are completely ignoring this. And this science and continuing to demand that everyone get this vaccine. This is insanity. 
We have never required people to get the chickenpox vaccine after recovering from the chickenpox. These examples of a shift in normalcy that develop into new biases or a hope to return to the old normal if we just do X is warily reminiscent of what the Jews and Christians experienced in pre-World War II Germany. The water is nearing the boiling point, and most of the frogs are oblivious. Life will get back to normal. So what do we do? Get out of the pot. Where's all this discussion leading? Back to our hearts. See, it is us, a line of hearts, to be attached to the things of the world that put us in danger. We are called to be set apart, not look like the world, but to be visibly different. 365 times in God's word we are told not to fear. We are commanded to be strong and courageous, to stand and be more than victors. Those that have their hearts rooted in the world act differently. Those that have their hearts rooted out of the world, they act differently. They do not suffer normalcy bias nearly as much as those rooted in the world. Yes, everyone will likely suffer from some amount of normalcy bias at some point. But if we are so consumed with what the world offers that we cannot see the lies, the corruption, the deceit, and evil around us, let alone do anything about it, then we have strayed from God and into the world too much. If only we would commit our hearts completely to God, His ways and desires, He would protect us from the confusions and lies that surround us. That does not mean that we wouldn't be that we would be rich or healthy or unpersecuted or not even killed. No, what it means is that we would not suffer the internal strife, the influences of the world that corrupts our hearts, the mental and emotional battles that tear us up inside, that torments us, that creates anxiety, fear, and depression, that lead us to destructive habits and desires, and cause us to act unholy. This physical shell is not as important to God that it is to us. Our heart or soul is what matters. It is that part of us that will live on after this vessel is destroyed. That enduring spirit that will enter into and live on with God or be forever separated from Him. See, we all die. Every one of our bodies will cease to function. It will wither and rot eventually returning to the earth that God made us from. The question is simply this. When that happens, what will be the destiny of your spirit? That part of you that connects to God and others, that part of you that matters the most. God does not want a single human to choose hell. What makes hell so awful? One, it was created for Satan and his demons. Secondly, because people don't realize that hell is the absence of God. The reason why there's no air in hell is because God is the breath of life. There's no peace in hell because God is the Prince of Peace. There is no comfort in hell because God is the Comforter. And there is no love in hell because God is love. Hell is darkness because God is light. What people don't realize is on earth they get to experience a lot of the good qualities of God, while here they get, of course, get to experience bad things on earth as well. If they do not choose God on earth, they do not get to experience His goodness in eternity. Often, we as Christians hear and talk about the magnitude 
with how much greater heaven will be compared to earth, but rarely the magnitude with which hell will be worse than earth. Hell is total separation from God. So if you like the beautiful things on earth, you should choose God because that's who God is. God doesn't send people to hell. He wishes none should perish. But we are already headed there if we do not have Jesus in our life. God made a way to keep us from going there. We just have to accept it and to choose that free gift. Choose Jesus. God's greatest desire is for us to choose to be with him. Choose life. Fellowship and abundance over death. The alternate is to choose death, meaning isolation and torment. Choosing to turn your back on God condemns you to an eternity of isolation, a life of torment and regret, a separation of anything good. Jesus died for each and every one of us. All of our sins, past, present, and future. That being said, Jesus, Jesus doesn't just desire to be fire insurance. He wants to have a loving relationship with each of us, a real relationship, just like a spouse, a boyfriend, girlfriend, parent, sibling, a relationship of any kind requires that we have to communicate and we have to be engaged in any relationship. We, we just don't accept the gifts from the other and then ignore them. No, we talk to them. We listen to them. Our relationship grows and develops over time. If a relationship is exactly the same a year, 10 years, or more than it was on the first day, that's not a real relationship. That's an acquaintance. This, I think, is the question for so many that claim to be Christians. Do you have a relationship with Jesus, or are you just acquaintances? See, the church building you go, may go to on Sunday is not intended to be a clubhouse. Being a Christian is not being in a club, though many treat it as such. Again, being a Christian, following the way, is about your heart. It's about a relationship with God, not your church, buddies, friends, or your pastor. Don't get me wrong. Believers will have incredible relationships with other believers, but it starts with their God relationship first. See, we cannot have a healthy and successful relationship with any other human being without a healthy relationship with God first. It is God that changes our attitude from what am I going to gain to what can I give. So no, our church buildings aren't clubs. We're not cooler because we attend one building over another. When the church starts understanding this, then it will start being blessed the way God wants to bless her. It's time to stop playing church and be the church. We need to go and for God wants us to be a united body, working in concert with his will. There are many people I have talked to, and they have concerns about not being able to hear from God or not feeling his presence. And I ask them about their relationship. What is it like? If you have a minimalist relationship with Jesus, you should expect minimalist benefits and minimalist changes in you. At the same time, the closer your relationship gets with Jesus, the more benefits from that relationship you will experience. You will see noticeable changes in your attitudes, desires, as well as your level of inner peace. 
removing the impacts of the world. So if you are not receiving what you desire from your relationship, then like any relationship, work on it. Talk to God. Tell Him what you desire from your relationship, and then listen to Him. And maybe read your Bible more. Okay, so now we've established the importance and power of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's talk about what happens when a group of people with a true relationship with Christ can do together. Christ calls us to be the church. So what does this mean? All Christians define themselves with reference to Jesus Christ. We are a people who believe in Jesus, who are followers of Jesus, who are baptized in Christ. According to the New Testament, the church is instituted by Jesus Christ. It exists for His sake and by His authority. The Word of God defines the church as in the terms of its relationship to Jesus Christ, specifically defines that relationship as an intimate bond of love. This relationship bond consists of those people who are loved by Jesus Christ and who love Jesus Christ in return. The church, as the bride of Christ, is defined in the Gospels. Jesus identifies himself as the bridegroom in Mark 2, 19. And in Ephesians, Paul interprets the marital relations as a great mystery that can be applied to Christ and the church in Ephesians 5, 31-33. Likewise, in Revelation, the church is identified as the bride of Christ. And that's in Revelation 22, 1 and 22, 17. The mission of the church, according to this image, seems to be simply to love Jesus. And the Bible gives an explanation of what that looks like. Jesus says, those who love me keep my commandments, John 14, 21. And Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus responds, feed my sheep. And that's in John 21, 15 through 17. The point, perhaps, is that feeding sheep and keeping commandments are all strategic directions that flow from the primary mission statement. The fundamental basic mission of the bride of Christ, or church, is to love the bridegroom. In doing so, one will naturally feed his sheep, will rescue the lost, and protect those in need. All of these acts are the outcome of that love. Now, many people confuse the church building with the church. But the building is not the church. It's the people who meet there to worship God, to get spiritual nourishment, pray, praise God, celebrate communion, and share their lives that are the church. The Let's be clear. You can be a member of a church and not a member of the church. For the church to be to the church, it has to be have communal expression. It has to be a fellowship of the Spirit of Christ. It is important for the church not to acquiesce to the individualic spirit of our time. This formation of faith in communities in which people can experience community with Jesus Christ as head of the church are important. As the church, being the body of Christ, each having different yet vital functions, we are called to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and we bring the image of Jesus into the world. Paul reminds us of an important truth. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. In the 1 Corinthians 12, 27, 
and Acts 2 describes the, the fellowship of the early believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and into prayer. They met every day and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They encouraged each other and shared what they had with those in need. Jesus only used the word church twice in the Gospels. The first time was in response to Peter's confession of faith in Jesus as his Savior, the Messiah. Peter boldly declared, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew 16, 16. Jesus responds, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And that's in verse 18. The word Jesus used for church refers to those who are called out. Peter's statement of faith is one all Christians give, and it is what binds us together. Therefore, as a member of Christ's body of believers, we too are called out as his people. We are Christ's church. The church has always consisted of those who are called out. We are people working together, using our gifts to serve others and live out God's grace and love. Now, more than ever, we need each other. We need to be the church. Fear, anxiety, isolation, and loneliness can weigh us down, but we can still be the church. We can show the love, respect, and forgiveness and servant heart of Jesus in so many ways. Pay special attention to those who live alone or are elderly. Make a covenant with your neighbors, friends, and family. Make plans to eat together. Plant a garden together. Organize shopping trips, serve meals, pray together. Offer to pick something up at the store for someone if you're planning to go out anyhow. The smallest things can make the biggest difference. These times can cause anyone to be stressed out and maybe a bit irritable. That can lead to some sharp words and grumpy spirits. Instead of adding to the stress, take a breath and instantly forgive. Respond kindly. Apologize freely. Be the peacemaker that Jesus says identifies one of his followers. We show the love of Jesus when we love and serve others. Keep your eyes and ears open and your heart in your everyday life and those who need his love. When we do this, we are taking the church out of the building and bringing it to life in our homes, neighborhoods, and communities, and beyond. While we are living in the troubled times, we have unprecedented avenues for re to reach far and wide to be the church. God's Spirit is not limited to the church, but it, His promise to the church to enable it to build it up and to engage in God's mission. And the church are meant to be together and not be at odds with each other. The start and mission of the church can be dated from the Pentecost. And the coming of the Holy Spirit in power on the disciples, the Spirit empowered his disciples to witness to Jesus. Acts 1. This church that Jesus built was never meant to be in defense. They were not to have or have never been meant to sit in a building on Sunday, listen to a sermon, and go home and live life like we are not what like we do not belong to the body of Christ. Walking in this world and not cursing, smiling at everyone, being peaceful, saying bless you and I'll pray for you is not our mission. Jesus said he gave us the keys 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. That means we are commissioned to attack the gates of hell. We're not weak. We're not merely defenders of the gospel. We are warriors that are commanded to attack hell with everything that we have. We are not to accept the evil of this world and meekly go upon our way and turn the other cheek. No, we are to push back against the evil of our day. We are to take it captive and break its hold on our families, our neighbors, cities, states, and nation. We are supposed to protect and defend our birthright. We are to attack and defeat that the evil that would steal it and enslave us all. So are you a member of a church, or are you a member of the church? Are you attacking the gates of hell? If not, when will you start? If you don't know how, ask your pastor. There is absolutely a war going on all around us, both in the physical world and in the spiritual world. Jesus expects us to attack the gates of hell, not sit peacefully by and quietly wait for his arrival. I hope this helps. I love my relationship with Jesus, and I desire for everyone to know the love and peace that he brings me. And I love you, which is why I do this show. I remember the before and how lonely and scared and desperate I felt. I don't wish that for anyone. Please don't wait. If you don't have a real relationship and you are just acquaintance with Jesus, change that today. He is waiting with open arms and he gives the best hugs. This has been a Veritas Resurgence broadcast, and today on A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, we've been talking about the heart and the soul of the church. Please take a moment and subscribe to our podcast, and don't forget to visit our website at vrbroadcast.org, where you can find more teaching and ask questions of the show and our guests. Also find us on Facebook at A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, and do us a favor, recommend the podcast to your friends and family. Again, thank you for listening, and have a blessed day. Thank you.